Good morning. My name is Chris Boyer, and I am a staff member here at the Lighthouse Church of Christ. My wife, Viviana, and I, we work for the college ministry. So we work with university students all the time, and I was so, so grateful to hear about your guys' work yesterday. I'm going to tell you what we were doing uh, over the weekend, but here's a little image of what happened yesterday uh, at the... uh, the Pomona Cold Winter Shelter, and there's some of, some of our members here working, and I just wanted to highlight it to show uh, what great work some of our members were doing there, and we really wish we could have been there, and I look forward to working with the Cold Winter Shelter more in the next few months as it is open up until, I believe, March. And so we, during that time frame, really want to involve ourselves there, and I want to encourage you guys who did work there and just highlight for those of you who are new here or guests here uh, that your family member brought you to service, you're coming back to church for the first time, that we have just amazing members who are doing work here in the community. Uh, but we, my wife and I were actually in Mexico over the weekend, and what we did was we went down there for a very close family friend. If any of you know Dan and Susan Strobel's son, Gabe Strobel, uh, he got married down there in Mexico to Nirvana Morales, right there. Doesn't he look good? All with a black eye and everything. Look at that. He's got a black eye, and Nirvana didn't give it to him, okay? That was wrestling uh, the night before the wedding, and so really encouraged. I'm also going to have to give a photo cred here. Uh, Kylie Boyer was a photographer. That's my six-year-old daughter. She took that photo, so hence the angle all down low, so... I'm really grateful to have spent time. Uh, Actually, I was really encouraged as well because uh, there was good waves this weekend and this was not far from the beach. So uh, we got some great surf session in while we were down there. But not only that is uh, yesterday on Saturday, I was able to go visit this orphanage called Dora Faith Orphanage. And it's down there in La Misión, Mexico, just north of Ensenada, uh, south of Rosarito. And uh, Dora Faith Uh, We went there about two years ago with the campus ministry, and we served. We had an opportunity to build and do some working projects while we were there. We missed last year, but um, I I used this trip very intentionally to try to go there and set up a trip and get it on the calendar. And so I just want to let all of you know and just put a plug for it right now. Friday, March 27th, I'm taking a group of 30 to 40 college students down there. And so I really want to put that out there for you guys as we are in the season of serving and giving. Um, The biggest area where we need help in this project is financial help uh, in order to distribute medical aid, uh, going to the dumps in Tijuana and distributing food, relationally spending it with the kids. And these work projects are especially the things that cost us money. So we can work with anything as a group from $100 up to $5,000. It could be $100 to paint a building or $5,000 to build a home. And depending on the skill level and who I have available to come with me that weekend, I have an ambition to do something great while we're there, both connecting with the kids, building something, distributing food in the dumps. It's going to be a great experience. So we do need your help with this. It was an awesome experience this weekend. Um, But we are in part three of a series called Starting Point. Now, in starting point, what we typically think of is our careers have starting points, our academic careers had starting points. Oftentimes, we reflect back on the beginning of a relationship, and there's a beginning to a relationship, and there was a starting point. But we don't usually think of our faith as having a starting point. But this was week one. We said that faith has a starting point. And we wanted to say in that lesson that, you know, saying the Bible says is not often a great starting or returning point to the Christian faith. That it was never intended to be that. 
And if you're coming back to the faith, you might know that if you've grown older as an adult and the answers that you had as a young Christian or a less mature person, that you, the answers you had when you were younger sufficed, but as you got older, they didn't work so well because you're like, well, the Bible also says, and what about this problem that's unreconciled? And I just have to say it because I work with millennials right now, and we're taught, I mean, just in the beginning of service, I was so encouraged. All the junior high ministry was standing in the back during the worship. For that generation, as they come up, just saying the Bible says isn't going to work. It doesn't work at this point, and it's not going to continue to work. So we're evaluating a starting point for a very intentional and specific reason, not just because we who have been Christians for 15-plus years need to reevaluate our faith and continue to take it higher, but we hit those low points in our life when circumstances get tough, when we lose jobs, when someone dies, when a relationship goes bad. We need to have a strong foundation. And so going back to revisit these things is very intentional and very purposeful for all of us in the room especially those who are coming back and starting our faith again, but even those of us who have been here for so long. And so you guys can review the last two weeks. This is part three, and some of you said, well, John Mantle spoke here last week, and well, we've had a little bit of, of hiccups because we had the marriage retreat, and so part one, Peter presented a few weeks ago, and John Mantle presented in the morning, but if you want to see part two, go to lighthousecoc.com, and there I presented part two, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second, but... Uh, the story of faith has a starting point as well. So we've established that, that faith has a starting point, but also the history of our faith has a starting point as well. And every major tradition does as well. Like if you look at any faith tradition, they, have, they all have a starting point. And that may not, may not have been something that got you into your faith. That may not have been the framework that set you up in your faith. But Oftentimes, even though we can sometimes be bored from history, I have to tell you and confess, I was a history major in college. Any other history majors here? Okay, yeah, all two of us? Okay, that's great. Yeah, super useful in society here today. And um, no, so the thing is, is I'm not a history buff, I'm not a history expert, but history is very interesting when you put time and space and, and you put it all together and you have a three-dimensional view of something. So today, we're going to get an opportunity to get into a little bit of the history of the starting point, not just of our faith, but of other faiths as well. Because the three largest faith traditions claim the same starting point. I don't know if you realize that, but Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all claim the same starting point. They all believe that there is a single God. Now, it's called Allah in Islam, but they believe that there is a single God and that, it, and that the world started in the middle of one man that through one man, God created mankind. And they all believe that through that man, although they might be a little bit different in some ways or the perspectives that they take on them, they all believe that that one man messed it up, okay? So through that one man, everything was messed up. And if you missed last week, I would really encourage you to go back and look at it, but the bottom line from last week is basically that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner. And people who come to the church for the first time, they're like, amen, all the people in church are also sinners, not just me. But sometimes we resist the idea that we're sinners, and we like to think of ourselves as just mistakers, that we made mistakes and we're correcting our mistakes over time. But what's it called when you make mistakes over and over and over again over years, period? What's it called when you intentionally make a mistake? Is that a mistake? No, mistake is when you're following the directions down in Mexico and you can't find the place in the middle of nowhere because you took a wrong direction because the printout directions didn't take you where you needed to go. That was a mistake. What do you do? You correct mistakes. 
You turn around and you head back. You make mistakes on math tests or quizzes. You made something unintentionally based on not enough information or you're working too fast on a time frame. That's what a mistake is. But making mistakes over and over and over again, basically the bottom line is we're doomed. We're doomed. We're, we have like a sponge and we're trying to mop up the ocean with a sponge that's impossible because we are so far from being perfect that we can't correct our way back into God's goodness and kindness. So week two is absolutely essential for you guys to look at. And it adds to, as we're going through the series, we're adding to every week. And so this is part three, and it's called Up a River. And so the three largest faith traditions claim the same starting point. And the, what we're trying to answer here is, how can I know that I'm right with God? That's, that's the starting point. That's where we want to go with this. And at the end of the series, we're going we're gonna to point you towards the starting point that we believe is the most important is, who is Jesus? And so as we leave here today, I want us to be able to leave here with peace and be able to answer the question, can I ever have peace? And all three started in the same point with Adam, and then they moved towards Abraham, and this is where they begin to diverge. And this man today is the person that we're going to be centering around and focusing on because this man, Abraham, is the most known man on the planet. This is where God decided to wade into the world, where he created mankind, and it was going awry, it was going bad, and he decided to strategically, as he stared into the world, into the injustice in the world, into the difficulty that, that existed 4,000 years ago when Abraham was around, that he stared into the world, and he decided to make a strategic step to get right with mankind. And so this was the man that God intervened into the world through. But how does that relate to you? So there's Abraham, and then there's you. And that's where we're going to get to today, because there is a dilemma here. How can I be right with God? Let me show you a picture of my first vehicle that I ever bought. Now, this is not an actual picture of it, but this is just like it. I had the same bumper on it. This is a 1988 Chevy Blazer. And when I got it, I bought it from an auction. It was beat down, broken windows, I mean, dented fenders. I got it from this auction for like, I think, less than $2,000. And I think it was $1,300 that we bought it for. And it was in 1997, and I put big tires on it just like this and a big bumper, and I would take this thing off-roading. And of course, this was from my father's expenses. I worked for him to try to make enough money that he would pay for this, and he paid for this, and he got it for me. And I was in return supposed to serve and help him out. And so one of the things that I did, would like to do with this was I would take it off-roading. And that was the purpose. Uh, although I drive on the street all the time, my dad didn't want me to build my car like this. I got nice knobby tires on it. And I would take the thing off-roading. And there was this dry riverbed that wasn't fully dry. It was more like a creek, but it was like, much, it, it was like you know, this big riverbed in between two valleys right behind Mission Viejo, down past Saddleback Junior College. And there's like a, a rock quarry down there. And we would drive through this little river. And, you know, rivers, when they, when they flow, they cut out the soil, right? They cut out the, the land. And sometimes there'll be like drop-offs like that, right? Like you'll have just a straight drop-off, like a little wall made out of dirt, okay? And so I, I mobbed down through some bushes and went through this little creek. And then I, there's this little wall. And obviously I'm totally out of control because I'm a 17-year-old with, you know, an off-roading vehicle. And I just slammed into this wall, and then my car went up like this, and then just landed on it, and basically ended up like 
resting, teetering on its frame on a little, you know, dirt wall, so to speak, okay? So my, my thing was just sitting on the frame like that. My front wheels and back wheels are basically off the ground, and it's a front-wheel drive vehicle that's not four-wheel drive. I was totally stuck. There was no way that I was going to, with the resources I had available to me, me and one other dude, to get that vehicle off of where I had put it. We tried digging. We tried my jack. We tried putting stuff. There was, I mean, with the, what this vehicle did and the knowledge and experience and resources I had available to me, I could not get that vehicle off. And so this was before the days of cell phones. Yes, before your smartphones, guys, there was a day we did not have cell phones, Okay or at least the widespread use of them at that time. It was in 19, probably 97 or 96. And during that time, uh, you had to go find a payphone. These were places you went and put quarters in and you paid and dialed numbers and you could get a hold of people. And so they didn't cause brain cancer. It was amazing. And so <laughs> me and my friend had to walk about two, out, you know, two miles or whatever, however long that took us. It was two miles away that we had to walk and we weren't runners or anything, so we didn't just run the two miles. We totally walked out of this creek bed up to find the nearest payphone with our quarter, and we called my dad, and my dad said, you did what? <laughs> well, call me when you get that mess cleaned up. <laughs> no. My dad paid for that car. <laughs> like, no way he's going to leave that car down there, okay? He did not do that. My dad was awesome. My dad, you know, he did not say, what did you do? Call me when it's cleaned up. He didn't do that in any way. He just said, hang on, I'll be right there. And then what does he do? He gets one of his friends with a 4 by 4 vehicle and an actual 4 by 4 vehicle and someone that knows what they're doing. And they get down there and they, they hook me up in the front bumper and they pull me off that little cliff. And, you know, I got out of it because my dad came and pulled me out of this mess that I was completely helpless to be able to save myself from, that I was at a total loss. I had totally messed up. It was my choice. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something I just made a mistake. I was down there goofing off, messing around, being wild, being reckless, and I got stuck. And my dad, without accusing me, without condemning me, came down and he rescued me out of my situation. Yeah. Do you think my dad would have ever left me down there, leaving my vehicle? No. He's not going to leave me down there. Is my dad more godly than God is? My dad's not more godly than God is. There's no way. You know, I was trapped in my own mess. And you too have an, a mess that you're trapped in. We have a mess that is so big that we can't clean it up. That there's no way for us to clean up the mess that we've put ourselves in the middle of. And not just because it was a mistake, but something that we have done by our own doing that we have put ourselves into the middle of. You know, I, I don't know if you ever had a situation like that where you dropped a glass and you're stuck in the middle of it with bare feet. Last night as I got home and I was cleaning out my car coming back from Mexico, my daughter wanted to put all the tick marks where she had earned money along the way, you know, by earning 25 cents. We have this little whiteboard and she climbs up on the counter and she, she reaches up to where we hold the pins, which is in this fruit basket. Well, on the top of the fruit basket, there was also a light bulb and the light bulb fell and it broke and she was so sad and so scared. And I came in and I pulled her out, but you know, I wasn't just gonna leave her as a father in the middle of that mess. And neither does God wanna leave us into, in the middle of our mess. And so God peers into the middle of this ancient world 4,000 years ago, and he sees this mess. And if you think we have injustice today, if you think we have disorder and chaos today, 
God peered into the society 4,000 years ago where slavery was normal, kidnapping normal. There was no order to society. It was tribal. It was survival of the fittest at that time. That he peers into the middle of this ancient society where there is just kidnapping, injustice, slavery, and he decides to intervene and wade into the middle of the mess to get out into the middle of that river where I was truly up a river without a paddle, that we are up a river without a paddle. And God saw that we were up a river without a paddle, and he decided to wade into the middle of it. So he starts his expedition to clean up the mess. In 1876, through this one man, he decided to interject into society through one man named Abraham. Now, Abraham wasn't an above-average righteous guy. Before this time, when God decided to intervene through Abraham, Abraham had already given his wife away to another man, to Pharaoh. He gives his wife away to Pharaoh because either I tell them she's my wife and then I'm going to die, they might kill me, or I could just say she's my sister. And so he gives his wife to Pharaoh to take as his own, saying, she's more like a sister to me. So if you think you have problems in your relationship, if you think you have problems with infidelity or anything, I mean, imagine Abraham. This guy, he lies about who his wife is. And here in Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to get into the scripture. You know, he has no kids at this time. He's super old. Um, Sarah is super old. She's past the time that she would be able to have kids. And here is where God begins to give these interesting three promises that we're going to look into. In Genesis 12, 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so at this point, super old, has no kids. Promise number one comes up. And I will make of you a great nation. Here he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. So he's like, up and uproot yourself from your friends and family, uproot yourself from your society. I'm going to take you out into, into the desert, into a new place, which is not something that I would think, if I were Abraham, this is what's going to establish me as a great nation. Even to understand this promise, I will make of you a great nation. And this promise right now, one of the great things about the idea that I'm going to share with you right now about these promises is no matter what you believe about the Genesis account, because some of you may believe that you need to read the Genesis account literally. Some of us think it's symbolic. Some of us in here today may not even believe in the Bible or the Genesis account altogether. But no matter what you believe about that, historically, this promise came true. This came true because you know why? He said, I will make of you a great nation. And you know who lays claim to that promise? The Muslims. They lay claim to that promise. They believe that they have been made a great nation through this one man, Abraham. You know who else believes that? The Jews believe that. Israel believes that. They believe that they are a great nation. You know who else believes that? Christians believe that. That's a lot of people in the history of the world and in the world today. That's a huge amount of people. So this man named Abraham was given this promise that he has no kids at this point. He's being uprooted from where he is to go somewhere else. He's not a man of above normal righteousness. And in fact, he's a relatively unknown man. And he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And today, this promise has definitely been fulfilled. This is fulfilled by our standards that we would talk about being a great nation. Because all these people lay claim to this one promise. This was filled 
God took a long, long time to fulfill it, but he did fulfill it. It didn't come in his day. Promise number two comes right after. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. Okay, so I want to ask you a question in here today. Before coming in here today, who here has ever heard of Abraham? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've ever heard of Abraham. Okay, we got a lot of hands, okay, in here. You know what? Before we ever became Christians, we probably heard of Abraham. Of these other uh, faith traditions that I'm telling you about today, they've heard of Abraham. This guy's name is better known, that it is more known, and there's more people banking off this guy's name than like anyone else. Now let me tell you another name. Cheddar Laomer. Who here knows who Cheddar Laomer is? No, nobody knows who Cheddar, okay, we got one person who knows who Cheddar Laomer again. Okay, this was the king of Edom during Abraham's time. Now, if you were Abraham, you would think that you would take someone who's already well known, that God would use that person to then make a great nation and make their name known because this man's name was known by everyone. Everyone would have known who his name is. But Abraham was a nobody. So God used the nobody to become somebody. And all of us here 4,000 years later know the name of Abraham, but we have no idea who that is. <clears throat> so that promise has been fulfilled. Promise number three, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, and all three faith traditions believe that, that via Abraham, that each one of those faith traditions that they have blessed the world. And think of all the things, you know, Islam believes one thing about their, their you know, nation and that through that, that people are able to be saved or, or, or the Jews believe that through that, through their birthright, that they're, you're able to be saved through their birthright, that you're able to bless the world through the name of Abraham. Christianity, even if you didn't go from a salvation standpoint, the hospitals that have been built, the way that the world has changed because of the Christian faith, and that is all via Abraham, in the middle of Abraham. All three take credit, and that is so interesting that there is no other man in the history of the world like Abraham. Because yes, Jesus' name, I believe, is incredibly well-known, more well-known than Abraham, but how, not all faith traditions take credit through Jesus. There's no one like Abraham in, in history, in the history of the world. That's what's so interesting and what's so amazing. So at this point, he has no kids. He has helpers, and Eleazar, his servant, his right-hand guy who's with him, he's the one who's going to inherit everything because at this point, he has no blood heir. He has no one to pass on, and he prayed a prayer of desperation. And in Genesis chapter 15, God gets a hold of him, and he tells him this. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not, this man Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And again, they're past age and have no kids. It's like, I don't even see how that would even happen. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Now, if I were to bring my kids outdoors, you know, in Walnut, California, and ask them to look up at the sky and say, let's number the stars, they would point to, they're like, there's one right there. I'm like, no, that's an airplane. It's like, well, I don't see anything else up there. Yeah, because we're in the middle of a city. But if you go up to like Sequoia National Forest, without the moon out, when the moon's not even out, it's so bright you could see the horizon. You could see the horizon, and it's from just end to end, 360 degrees, that you're in this 
just canopy of stars that there is no way that you can number them. And in the Mediterranean desert, just being out there in the middle of the nowhere 4,000 years ago, he would have looked up at the sky and it would have been bright as day with the number of stars that you would have been able to see. And he says here, if you were able, and of course you're not able to number them, he says, I am going to do that with your kids. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's what's going to happen with your offspring. He gives them these promises, and then in Genesis 15, you know, he's, you know, desperate. He doesn't have any kids. He takes them outside. Look up at the stars. I'm going to make your children just like that. That is an unbelievable promise. He's already given unbelievable promises that would have been hard to accept and hard to understand at that time. And he gives him this promise, which is so difficult for him to understand at that time. And this is that amazing statement that before the Ten Commandments, before Jesus ever arrived on the scene, before the prophet Muhammad ever came, that Abraham was given this one statement about him. It says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the powerful statement that I want everyone in here to know today, to walk away with, that he believed the Lord and he was credited as righteous because of his belief. He was given righteousness, not because of what he did, not because of his birthright, not because of what he had done or he was above ordinary in his righteousness, but instead it was because he believed the Lord. And it was credit to him as righteousness. So the one thing that you guys need to know today, this is the bottom line that I want you guys to go ahead and write down. If you've been texting or emailing, just stop. And, and maybe you want to tweet this one or, or write it down on your cell phone in some note. Trusting in God resulted in a right standing with God. That trusting in him will result in a right standing with him. That to Abraham, because he trusted God, he had right standing. And that still remains true for you and me today. Over the years, we've added a lot of other things to it. There's things that, that even, even you might argue in your head with this statement right now. That, you know, oh, there's these other things, and what about X, Y, or Z? Or, but the beginning or starting point of having a relationship with God has to be trusting in Him. And for someone to continue in their faith and make it 15 years or 25 years, it's not going to be because of their ability to autocorrect. It's going to be because they trust in God. And so I want to show you this scripture right now because of the way that I know that you and me and those of us who want to work hard and do what's right, that there's this scripture that I want to point you towards in Psalms chapter 9, where the psalmist says, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Here it says those who know his name. Well, of course, you know who Jesus Christ, you've seen the movie, you heard songs about him, you know, yeah, you know who God is, the one God. No, it's not just about knowing who God is or the idea of God or being raised in church, but knowing the character of God, knowing that God is totally perfect, that he's always loving, that his love knows no bounds, that when we know who God is, when we really know him, we put our trust in him that we'll pick up that phone, we'll get the quarter out, we'll walk two miles, put the quarter in the phone and go, Dad, I'm lost. I need help. I'm in the middle of a mess that's bigger than I'm able to clean up. We will call him because we know his name. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken, that God never fails to live up to the promises that he has given, that God will not leave us 
Because the question that we're trying to answer here today is how can I have peace? When is enough enough? When have I done enough? When have I been a Christian long enough? When have I been good enough? When, when, when is enough enough? Am I right with God? And all of us have wrestled with that question. Whether you're here for the first time at church, or you've been here for 25 years, we all are in pursuit of finding that peace with God. He hasn't forsaken those who seek him, seeking him. So one of the things that I would tell you that you're not going to find all of your answers by studying and studying and studying and looking at the Bible and finding all the answers to all your questions because there are things that you're going to, at the end of the day, have to trust in God. But what I would say is that we need to seek God and pursue him by getting to know him. And one of the ways that we get to know God is by reading in the Bible. And if you're here for the first time, we have a simple Bible study series called The Core Four that is the beginning or a foundation or a, a platform for a conversation about what it means to know God and to follow Jesus Christ. It's not comprehensive, but it's a good start to a conversation. But for those of us who have been Christians for 10, 15 years, I want to tell you that this lesson is more for us than you would even imagine. Because you know what? A lot of us stop seeking we become Christians, we become auto-correctors, and we start just thinking that we're going to auto-correct our way into heaven by, by doing all the right things and righting our mistakes that we're going to make it into heaven instead of by trusting in God, instead of by really pursuing him and having a right relationship. We ask, how much do I need to give to be right with God? How long do my quiet times have to be to be considered a real quiet time? And we start becoming so legalistic about, well, church is a 90-minute session on Sunday morning instead of living out our Christianity on a daily basis, seeking God and seeking a relationship with him where we know who God is and we trust him, but we're trying to auto-correct our way into a relationship with God. And so he, last week I talked about trying to right your wrongs is like if we took sponges down to the ocean and tried to mop up the ocean. Well, this week I have another illustration, which is two stoplights, that if you were to get pulled over by a police officer, which we have some amazing... Uh, Police officers here in our congregation, if one of these guys pulls you over one day for running a red light and he gets out his ticket book and he starts looking at the citations, you know, to, to write you a citation, and you're like, wait, officer, don't you know that I've stopped at other red lights before? Yeah, I've stopped at a lot of red lights. And in fact, I've obeyed green lights even. Like, I usually obey the green lights. I just go right when it's green, you know? And so because of all the ways that I've obeyed in the past, doesn't that make me okay? Doesn't that, like, erase my citation? You know, all of us would say, that's ridiculous. No, you ran the red light. You, you, you made a mistake, and not your, your future obedience or past obedience would not in any way bring you into a right standing with that police officer. In the same way, when we try to do what's right and we repent of sin, when we change our ways and start to pursue God and have long, quiet times and give to the poor, it does not bring us into a right standing with God. We are up a river without a creek. We are completely doomed without Jesus. And only through the forgiveness that the name of Jesus provides are we able to be saved. But when you know God, you obey God. When you trust in God, you do what's right, as 1 John 2, chapter 4 tells us, that the man who knows him obeys his commands. And if he does not, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. So it's not because of our obedience that we're able to be saved. It's not because of that. It's because we know who God is. And we trust what he says. And when we trust what he says, it comes out from in us that we want to do what's right. That doesn't mean it doesn't require self-discipline. That doesn't mean that it doesn't require skill. 
That doesn't mean that it doesn't require knowledge. It requires all of those things. I'm, I am huge for determination. If there's one thing I could say about my character, I am a determined individual, that I am relentless. That is one of the types of, that, that is my A-type obsessive personality that I am. I am all for being disciplined, and I believe we all need to practice more self-discipline. It is a fruit of the Spirit, but it's just that. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It comes as a result of having God's Spirit. It is a gift. It's a discipline. It's a skill to try to do what's right and to continue to follow God. But all the green lights we obey and all the red lights we stop at does not put us in a right standing with God. It's trusting in Him and knowing Him. And because of that trust that we have in Him, we want to give to the poor. We want to build and work on homeless shelters. We want to repent of sin and do what's right. So I could tell you all the right and wrong things to do. I could say, this is our gnarly dating guidelines that we have for you. And I could tell you all the dating guidelines that we have in our college and teen ministry. But you know what? You got to trust in God with everything. I could tell you when to eat and when not to eat. But you know what? You need to trust in God with your fitness. You need to trust in God with your nutrition. You need to trust in God with your finances. You need to trust in God in your relationships and your time and how you spend your time and what you're choosing to spend your time on. That really, it's about trusting in God. What if the main thing God is communicating is to trust in him? What if from Genesis to Revelation, the main thing that he's trying to get everyone to understand is that we need to trust in him? And Jesus came to die for our sins and to forgive us. And yes, there's a clear paradigm of salvation that we could find there. But the main thing that you need to understand is to trust in him. Well, do I get baptized? What about the sinner's prayer? What if someone falls away and then they're on their deathbed? And then, you know, what happens then? It's like, look, the main thing that we need to communicate is to trust in him. The main thing we need to communicate. And then obedience is going to come as a result of knowing God and trusting that his will for our lives is good. Because I don't have all of the answers. What if the starting point in a relationship with God starts with trust? And that's the main thing that we need to start to communicate with someone who begins to study the Bible, helping them build trust as we raise our children, teaching them to trust in God and who he is whatever methods, methodologies that we use in communicating that, how we teach them about following, because things are going to change over time as far as methods are concerned. The paradigm is clear of salvation, but the starting point is trust. The returning point is trust. And the place that's going to continue us going spiritually is trust in God. So here's a question for you guys to argue about as you go to lunch today and you argue over this topic. Which of the following best describes your view? Why? Okay. God accepts me, okay, or I'm forgiven of my sin. I'm in the grace of God. When I stand before God on my judgment, on, he's on his judgment seat, and I'm standing there on trial, what is the one thing that I'm going to say to him that is able to justify me and put me in a right standing? How can I have peace in that moment, in that day? God accepts me based upon my birthright. It's because I'm in his Christian family. My parents took me to church. Or, you know, as the Jews would say, you know, it's through the lineage. Uh, or is it because of my beliefs? It's because I believe all the right things. I have all the right doctrines down. Is it because my behavior, that I've obeyed all the right things and I've done all the necessary steps and I have disciplined myself intensely to be able to follow everything I need to follow, that my behavior is going to get me into heaven? Or is it some combination of the above? That's something for you guys to think about. And the reason I say argue is because we all think something about that. Everyone in here, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here for 15 years, we all think something about this. 
And so what I want to encourage you today is have great conversations over lunch. Have great conversations today. The trusting in God resulted in a right standing with God in the case of Abraham. He was the father of faith. He's the father of our faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness because he believed God. And so today as we leave here, I pray that we can all find peace and we can start our relationship with God, return to our relationship with God, or continue our relationship with God because we know him and we trust in him. And that's the thing that's going to keep us going. Right now what we're going to do is we're going to take the communion. And as we take the communion, we can remember how Jesus saved us in the middle of our mess. That Jesus came and died for our sins, that God was self-sacrificing, and he took the time. He didn't come and just point his finger and go, I'm just going to leave you there. You, you really messed up. But instead, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Let's pray for the communion. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to look into Abraham, the father of our faith. Father, in so many ways, we've overlooked the history of it. We've overlooked the significance of it. Father, sometimes we wrestle with these ideas in our heart. How can we have peace with you here today? But Father, as we come before you, we pray that we could find peace in our hearts as we pursue you. We seek you here today. We want your Holy Spirit to fill us. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray for this communion. I pray that we could remember his sacrifice on the cross, the blood that was shed and the flesh that was torn for us, how you rescued us when we were truly up a river. We are up a river without you. In Jesus' name, amen.